This NDA is a rejection of the bulk of this administration's foreign policy, right? It comes in hard against Russia and its involvement in Eastern Europe. It comes out hard against Turkey and our allowing of the Turks to roll over our allies and the Kurds. It comes out aggressively against China. It is the week of December 17th, and welcome to the eighth episode of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have Dana Struhl, former senior staff member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Jamil Jaffer, NSI founder and executive director and former chief counsel and senior advisor at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and a new guest to NSI, Elisa Catalano, former director for the Middle East and North Africa on the National Security Council and former senior policy advisor at the State Department. And I'm Lester Munson, senior fellow at NSI and the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. This week, we're going to be discussing the Washington Post's amazing week-long series of articles, the Afghanistan Papers, that analyzed thousands of documents, including interviews from key policymakers, that show the U.S. government was painting a much rosier but false picture of what was going on in Afghanistan. We'll then take a look at foreign policy issues in the 2020 National Defense Authorization Act, a, a very exciting issue for everyone. Okay, so let's start with Afghanistan. Uh, the Washington Post just ran uh, six very long articles about the war in that country. Uh, art, these articles are based on documents the Post foiled from the Special Inspector General uh, for Afghanistan Reconstruction, or SIGAR. There's some amazing quotes in there from policymakers about how they knew things in Afghanistan were not going well, even though most of the public statements were positive. For example... Uh, former General Doug Lute, who was a civilian official in both the Bush administration and the Obama administration, said, quote, we were devoid of a fundamental understanding of Afghanistan. We didn't know what we were doing, unquote. So the implication of this series of articles, uh, explicit and implicit, is that the war in Afghanistan was a failure. Was it, Jamil? I mean, the United States has been free of a major terrorist attack on our soil um, for the last 17, 18 years. So I would say uh, while it may have been a lot of things, uh, if the goal was to prevent major acts of terrorism on U.S. soil, it has been a complete and total success. This is Dana. So I think the challenge here is that by the original definition of the mission for invading Afghanistan, which was to eliminate the al-Qaeda sanctuary in Afghanistan, and let's recall we haven't done a big debate here yet about the fault line of authorizations for the use of military force, but the original AUMF in 2001 after the September 11th terrorist attacks was to go after al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. So Jamil is right that if the narrow military mission set at the beginning in 2001 was to eliminate al-Qaeda's sanctuary, which the Taliban had provided, then sure, we haven't had a terrorist attack here. Al-Qaeda has not regained its foothold in Afghanistan. But mission creep, um, and we all know that over time in the uh, during the Bush administration, the mission morphed into bringing democracy and transitioning to a open representative form of governance uh, in Afghanistan and an economy not based on opium sales, etc. Um, and by that definition, I would not say that the mission has been successful. Elisa. Thank you for letting me join you today. I mean, I think 
One of the lessons from the Afghanistan papers is that there's a difference between tactical success and strategic failure, right? So when you have goals that are a moving target, when they morph over time, when the issues on the ground are as fluid and as complicated as they are in a place like Afghanistan, and you literally have people's lives on the line, we, the national security community, and I would argue this is both uh, a failing of the executive and the legislative branches, don't take the time and the space to ask ourselves have our ends changed? Why? Why not? Uh, are we are we being realistic about what those ends are? And do the ways in which we meet those ends actually match up with those ends? Or are we trying to fit you know, the square peg in the round hole? And I think if there's anything that these, this revelation in the Washington Post brings to, to the fore is the disconnect between these two things. Okay. So let's, let's uh, kind of get into some of the weeds here on uh, what happened in Afghanistan. We've been there for 18 years. It is by far the longest conflict in American history. Over 2,400 Americans have been killed uh, because, of the mil- uh, because of military action. Over 20,000 have been wounded. Uh, well over 100,000 Afghanis have been killed. How do you... So, are, yes, there, there was some mission creep, but overall is, what's your overall assessment given those human costs... Was it worth the the win, as you say, Jamil, of ending the possibility of a terrorist threat against the U.S. from Afghanistan? Well, look, I mean, on 9-11 itself, nearly 3,000 Americans were killed in a matter of minutes, uh, maybe a few hours, if you include all the attacks around the country and the ultimate crash of the airplane in that field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And over the last 18 years, we've lost 2,300 military lives, so not civilians, so over nearly 3,000 civilians killed in in almost an instant on one day. In 18 years, 2,300 military members who volunteered uh, to give their lives to this nation, defend this nation. To me, while those lives are are tragically lost and, and we should do everything we can for those families, that is exactly the kind of thing our military is designed to do. And in fact, if you look at the 9-11 AUMF, which is a very short uh, a statement by Congress passed just seven days after 9-11. It says the president is authorized to use all necessary and appropriate force, dot, 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 in order to prevent any future acts of international terrorism against the United States by such nations, organizations, or persons. Those were the nations, organizations, or persons responsible for 9-11. The president did that. Successive presidents have done that. And we have not had a mass casualty terrorist attack. Now, there's a lot to be said about whether you should, whether you can rebuild a country, change its economy fundamentally from opium to something else, um, whether you should do that, um, whether we should have learned the lesson of the great game over, over, the, over hundreds of years that no country's been successful going to this part of Central Asia. Um, but if the goal was as we set out in the statute passed by Congress and still in effect today as the authorization for the use of military force, we have absolutely achieved that goal and succeeded. So... This idea that somehow the loss of lives has been too much, we lost more lives on that single day than we lost over 18 years in Afghanistan. I just think that there's there's a narrow definition of success as Jamil has laid out, and then what U.S. forces have actually been doing in Afghanistan for the majority of these 18 years, and it's not fighting al-Qaeda, right? It's training the Afghan National Security Forces. It's trying to build trust with local communities so that they adopt more inclusive representative models or stitch the provinces of, of Afghanistan to recognize the central government. It's providing force protection to the Afghan national government so they can attempt to govern or attempt to take steps to be less 
less corrupt or be more inclusive or et cetera, et cetera. Those are beyond, I would argue, the scope of the 9-11 AUMF. All right. So, but doesn't that, and, and at least I want to let you jump in here, but is doesn't that kind of bring up exactly the issue with the AUMF, which is it's open-ended. There's no sunset clause. There's nothing in it that says once you've achieved your goals, you, you stop uh, these kinds of activities. What do we, it's still in effect 18 years later. By the way, uh, from my understanding, almost all of the AUMFs through history are still technically in effect because they haven't been repealed. Uh, so what, is, what does that really say about our policymaking process, Elisa? That it's broken. <laughs> <laughs> all right, be specific. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I think, I think the fact that we are no longer in a place where we can have a dispassionate discussion about what the AUMFs mean or don't mean and how they should or should not be changed is symptomatic of exactly what the Washington Post is saying, that that our ability to look back on this experience and say what worked and what didn't work and how it needs to change is something that we fundamentally are are not adept at, at that kind of self-correction. And when you put it in those terms, I do think any Americans killed is an American too many, but that's but that's a fundamental Washington problem. It is not a problem on the ground in Afghanistan. So, so Jamil, should once uh, we found Osama bin Laden and ended his life, should we have stopped our activities in Afghanistan? Of course not. The goal was not to kill Osama bin Laden. The goal was to stop another terrorist attack on the United States. So, how and do we know? How do we mean, know when we've won? Yeah. We win when there's no terrorist attacks in the United States. And the, what we've been trying to do for the last 18 years is to rebuild a government that can't be rebuilt, to change the economy that can't be changed, all because we want to get out of Dodge, right? But the reality is that when America stops conflicts from happening, it doesn't get out of Dodge. We're still on the Korean Peninsula. We're still in Germany. We're still in England. Because Japan. when America stays, still, still in Japan, because when America stays, we stop conflicts from happening because our presence there matters. But because we've wanted to get out of Dodge and everyone wants to get home and end endless wars, as Barack Obama said and as Donald Trump has doubled down on, right? So, I mean, there's four people in this country who think we should get out of Afghanistan. That's Rand Paul, Mike Lee, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump. They're the ones who agree. But the truth is, the American people want us there because we'd rather fight the enemy overseas than fight them here. Now, we could talk about Congress should debate the 9-11 AUMF, but there's a reason why. Congress isn't debating the 9-11 AUMF because the 9-11 AUMF is still doing its job. We are stopping terrorism overseas rather than having to fight it here. The American people want that. The American people's elected elected representatives in Congress want that. It's not because the policy process is broken. It's because the 9-11 AUMF is working. Dana, is that a a debatable point? I mean, the, the AUMF passed in 2001. Uh, the, we've elected two presidents, uh, President Obama and President Trump, who are more or less, let's pull our guys home. Congress continues to fund these activities. On the other hand, uh, there's, you can tell there's a waning interest in U.S. adventurism abroad. So is this, is this a debatable point, what Jamila is saying? I do think it's a debatable point that, one, the American, the American body electorate wants U.S. forces abroad. And two, I think it's a, a debatable point as to everybody other than four people thinking the 9-11 AUMF is working. So I am not going to disagree with Jamil on the necessity of having an AUMF to allow us to uh, deploy at when necessary and in our interest to prevent terrorist attacks from happening here in the homeland by addressing the conditions that lead to terrorists wanting to attack us abroad. However, I don't think anybody who voted for the 9-11 AUMF 18 years ago thought it would be used today for U.S. forces to deploy globally, whether it's Iraq, 
Syria, countries in West Africa, the Philippines, etc., is all under the umbrella of the 9-11-2001 AUMF. So I think I would reject the premise that the American people want us in Afghanistan specifically. I'm not entirely sure that the data supports that. I think, in fact, it kind of it, it harkens on on a on an area that I I like to get a little emotional and 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 uh, enthusiastic about, and that's the growing divide between the American electorate and and those who who serve in the U.S. armed forces. I mean that that schism that divide is larger now, arguably, than it certainly was in 2001. And so to the extent that that Americans care generally how many U.S. military members are currently present in Afghanistan and understand what they're doing there, I think is a big question mark. And that's exactly the kind of debate we should be having. And not only amongst the four people who think the AUMF may or may not be working, but the broader kind of political discussion that presumably these elected officials are in Washington to represent. All right, let's get uh, – this is, these are all uh, great points, and I think uh, – I don't know that we can resolve this question, but these are – they're all material to what the Post was writing Well, Jamil about. and I right now will negotiate the text of a new AUMF, send it over the hill, and then we've solved it. So uh, to be, to that be sounds fair, not, not, like not a bad idea. Actually, to be fair, we you know we actually discussed this issue of a new AUMF right in the Foreign Relations Committee when Senator Corker and Senator Menendez were uh, and Senator Cardin also were there um, as chair and ranking member. Um, and the problem was not that those people and some of the other folks in Congress who were folks in this issue couldn't agree on some potential text. The problem was no other member of Congress, no other member of the Senate wanted to take the issue up. Oh, I also think you have to lay some blame on the executive branch, whether it's the previous one or the current one, because no executive wants to see the authority of the executive branch limited in any way when it comes to the conduct of war, the decision to go to war, or how to face threats abroad. So I don't, while while I am in no way going to defend members of Congress on either side of the aisle on having the courage to actually debate um, and, and move forward an AUMF that would be acceptable to everyone, certainly there is plenty of blame to go on the executive branch. I totally agree. I mean, look, Tim Kaine is a leader on this issue. He's said we need a new we need a new AUMF. He's put he's put legislation out there. He's offered it. Right, a number of members have have have, have discussed it publicly. The issue is that members of Congress don't want to vote on this issue because they don't want to take responsibility for it. They didn't want to vote on Syria. They didn't want to vote on they they you know resisted voting on Iraq. They've resisted bringing this issue up. It's just members of Congress don't want to be responsible for for what's going on there. They, they're happy to have the president take the responsibility, and the president's happy to say, well, I'll get to decide okay. where right. where, well, where we go. All right, that's that's all. There's a lot of truth in what you guys are saying. I might disagree with some parts, but let's, let's get a little wonky here and get into the fact that in Afghanistan in 18 years, we've spent a trillion dollars. Of that trillion dollars, about $133 billion, that's a lot of money, was spent on foreign assistance programs that largely were either not effective or didn't really give us what they should have given us for the amount of money we spent. What about, what about oversight mechanisms on the Hill? Were they working? Were we doing our jobs when we were up there? Is Congress doing its job now in making sure that these monies are well spent? So first of all, I would say in order for Congress to do its oversight job, you need to be able to have an executive branch that's willing to provide accurate, honest, and frank assessments about not only the objectives of the programs for which that assistance is being spent, but be honest about the assessments and metrics for monitoring and evaluation on the ground. And I can say, not for Afghanistan, but having 
conducted oversight on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee of a variety of assistance programs in the Middle East and North Africa, it is really, really hard to get past the spin from the executive branch about how we know that the money we're spending is impacting real lives in a meaningful way that is in our U.S. national security interests. Okay, but Congress set up exactly the mechanism that led to these stories coming out. The Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, Cigar, was was from Congress to take a look at this money. Cigar was very aggressive. It itself had a lot of resources to do exactly this kind of analysis. There were a ton of reports came out. These leaked document, these documents that were FOIA'd come from their lessons learned investigation. So there's there's been some evidence that a lot of these programs just weren't very effective. I can recall in the in about the middle of the Bush administration, people knew that the schools we were building and the clinics we were building were not you know, a thousand percent effective, that we couldn't find some of them, that some of them were built in crazy places, that we probably built too many of them. So the, these these problems were known, Is but at the end of the day, Congress appropriates the money for all these activities and authorizes all of the actions. Is Congress really doing its job? You know, it, it, here, 18 years later, a trillion dollars out the door. Jamil? No. I mean, Congress's, Congress's is, is almost unable to do that job. When you talk about these amounts of money, Right. And uh, this level of detail and trying to just go out there on a staff Dell or a, or a member member delegation trip for a week and you see all the pretty things. They show you all the nice projects. Right. It's very hard to dig in and dive deep. Right. Congress doesn't have the resources of bandwidth to go super deep. It has to rely on an administration being transparent and upfront. And let's be honest. Right. I think what these papers reveal is that every administration from from the Bush administration that you and I served in to the Obama administration that our colleagues served in uh, to the present administration has not been fully transparent about what's going on in Afghanistan um, and how the money is being spent and the challenges. And even to the extent that we knew these problems, right, and even to the extent that Congress knew about these problems, because Cigar has issued public reports and private reports to Congress repeatedly, it's not like we didn't know money was being wasted or, going, or getting lost or, you know, bridges of nowhere being built. It's just... Congress doesn't have the wherewithal to do what it takes to address these issues. I mean, we spend trillions of dollars on all sorts of things that are wasted, and Congress doesn't seem to rein that in. Why should they do it here? Elisa. So having been on the implementation side of all of this, those are exactly the kinds of questions that that make it that that have no answers and therefore make it very easy for us to throw more money at the problem, right? I mean, when you're talking about you, and, and I may speak you know, uh, inaccurately here, but when you're talking about funding that, that works the way it does year on year and you've got to spend it, et cetera, et cetera, when you have the fact that you've tens of thousands of Americans, both civilian and military, deployed to these parts of the world and and are left with the responsibility to figure out how to spend that money on a timeline that doesn't match the conditions on the ground, you end up with this perfect storm of of when you don't have time, you throw resources at it, right? And that is exactly what Afghanistan and and, and Iraq um, similarly have become with respect to how we have thought about U.S. assistance in these places to reach ends that were much more complicated and much more long-term to accomplish. All right, let's go to our exit question for this segment, which is, uh, will there be consequences for 
budgetary decisions next year in 2020 in the national security space? In other words, will Congress take some kind of action in either foreign assistance or defense spending because of this series of articles and the revelation that, you know, billions of dollars, maybe tens of billions of dollars was wasted in Afghanistan over 18 years? Yes or no? Jamil, you go first. Will there be accountability? Will there be will there be changes? Will Congress act because of this kind of putting all this stuff in one place and everyone realizing that we spent way too much money? Maybe. Only because of Congress is shamed into it. But look, the challenge is, is that the American people, frankly, aren't holding our elected leaders accountable for anything. They're not holding Congress responsible for what Congress does. They're not holding the president responsible for what he does. Um, this has been a longer-term issue. People vote on their pocketbooks by and large. And they're not focused on some of these key issues. And some members of Congress get away with letting this stuff happen and get away with being, um, you know, unwilling to, to take a position on anything. Frankly, look, Congress, this Congress has done almost nothing, right? And you heard, well, it was this Republican do-nothing Congress, the House and the Senate. Well, the Democrats took control of the House and they've done nothing. And they'll blame the Republicans Jamil. and say, well, the, the Republican Senate won't move any bills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's always an answer to why people don't get anything done. But let's be candid. Congress has not done the people's job for a long time, and it's gotten worse, not better, since Donald Trump's been in office. It's gotten worse, not better, since the Tea Party movement has come into play. There is no bipartisanship. We are divided as a nation, and the American people need to hold Congress and the president responsible, and they have currently been unwilling to do that to the country. The country's gone the opposite direction, electing disruptors like Donald Trump and Rand Paul and Mike Lee. And look at how that's worked out for all of us. It hasn't worked. All right, just to be clear, the exit question is a yes or no question. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to follow your rules. I don't think that Congress legislatively is going to hold um, accountable for the misspent or wrongly spent or overspent dollars in, in Afghanistan. However, I do think next year the big thing is an election and you actually have people in the Democratic primary who sound very similar to Donald Trump in terms of their hesitation or skepticism about the spending of U.S. foreign assistance in contexts like this. So I think that there is going to be some accountability. It may be through the ballot box. And what Jamil is saying is the American people do not hold members of Congress accountable. In some ways they actually do because they keep electing new leaders every two years and four years and then we do this whole thing in but a lot of that I, I don't think it's about Afghanistan but I do think that there is frustration with members of Congress and that's why you keep seeing all of these um, disrupt disruptive electoral cycles so Elisa. I'm gonna give a super wonky answer and obviously not following your rules either Lester Excellent. Um, I think what what Congress can do and should do is take this opportunity to ask the questions that haven't been asked for 18 years, right? And you know, the the easy answer here is the binary, get out, don't get out. Um, there's obviously the news this week about a potential announcement from, from the administration on lowering troop numbers. What does that all mean, right? I mean, it sound, sounds great, but can someone actually break that down and explain what is the mission set of those 8,000-plus military members who will still be in Afghanistan? Is it realistic? What will it cost? What will all the things that are not about those 8,000 military members but everything else we do in Afghanistan, what is that going to cost and does that make sense? And that's a conversation that is a natural outgrowth of the Afghanistan papers that isn't just about we shouldn't be there or we should be there, but really about how we use those powers that we do have abroad when we do elect to use them wisely. Okay, I think we're going to see real consequences next year. I think uh, I totally agree with Dana. There are movements in both parties, uh, more isolationist or I should say just not pro 
internationalist. I don't necessarily mean I, I don't cast aspersions with the word isolationist generally, so I, I don't know that it's necessarily a negative thing, but there's it not is. there's not the move for US global leadership in the two parties the way there used to be. I think it's a little more pronounced with Republicans than it is with Democrats, but it's on the move with Democrats. And I think this series of articles and the amounts of money involved and the lives that were lost are going to drive people to be much more restrained in the resources they're going to be willing to give the administration to spend. So I think there are going to be real consequences. All right, so I, so my read of of our kind of lightning round there, yes or no question, <laughs> is that it's a bit of a muddle, that some of us think uh, there will be action in Congress next year. Uh, others are more skeptical, mostly Jamil, and he talks louder. So, uh, all right, let's get to our second topic, which is the National Defense Authorization Act for 2020, or NDAA. As we know, the NDAA comes out of the Armed Services Committees in both the House and the Senate. It's an authorizing bill. This is not an appropriation. It's meant to set policy for the military and our other defense-related agencies. Uh, It's passed one House of Congress. It's about to go to the president. This bill is designed to focus on defense policy, but this year it has um, a seemingly very high number of foreign policy provisions, stuff we would normally expect to see come out of the Foreign Affairs Committee in the House or the Foreign Relations Committee in the Senate. I'm thinking of sanctions on various gas pipelines, Nord Stream 2, Turk Stream. Those are pipelines that go from Russia into Europe. There are sanctions on Syria. Lebanon, North Korea. There are restrictions on our security relationship with Turkey. These are all issues that are either in the foreign affairs or banking committees. There are, it's a real power grab by the Armed Services Committee. What do we think of this? Jamil, you and I used to uh, uh, try to join forces with our Democrat counterparts and fight this kind of thing. It seems like it's higher than ever. What's going on? Yeah, but it feels like you and I didn't work on the same committee because while you say it's the responsibility of the foreign affairs and foreign relations committees, the reality is that very rarely have those committees actually acted in this area. To the contrary, and it's true under our watch, we did do, we did take some action on Russia sanctions in particular uh, and a number of other areas. But but let's be serious, right? The majority of sanctions, uh, economic sanctions, have been imposed by the Banking Committee, not the Foreign Relations Committee. I mean, the NDA every year has a cattle call of you know, provisions that have nothing to do with defense, um, oftentimes have to do with intelligence, have to do with foreign affairs, um, and even go well beyond that because the NDA is viewed, and frankly good on the armed services committees in both the House and Senate for making it a must-pass piece of legislation. They have succeeded where, where the Foreign Relations Committee has failed and other committees have failed to make their legislation must-pass. And so everyone hangs their, their Christmas tree ornaments on the NDAA. Now, in this case... Um, Yes, the uh, the Armed Services Committee has made a power grab and has put sanctions in, but these are the right sanctions. These are sanctions that should be put in place. Uh, frankly, it's sanctions that the administration is probably in part resistant to, uh, limitations on their authority to work with our alleged allies in Turkey and um, you know allow the Russians to run roughshod over allies in Eastern Europe. So these are good things. Um, and if nobody else is going to step up and do it and the rest of Congress is 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 going to sit by and watch it happen, the Armed Services ca- Committee can and should do it, and good on them. Dana? So I can't really disagree with Jamil here. Um, the NDAA is the only must-pass piece of national security legislation. Now, some of it is about the Foreign Affairs Committee and the Foreign Relations Committee in the House and the Senate. Some of it is about congressional leadership at the top who don't want to waste their precious floor time on something other than the NDAA because there's so many domestic policy priorities. Some of it is about the constituency supporting legislation. So there's just not the same constituency in the foreign aid community or the diplomacy 
community for the State Department Reauthorization Act. Um, and and so, you know, good on good on the armed services committees that at least we have this piece of legislation. And and from my perspective, there is very necessary non armed services priorities legislation that needs to be passed. And if this is the only vehicle I'd rather see it become law than see nothing become law because we can't do anything in the national security space other than NDAA unless it's single issue boutique pieces of legislation because there's such a groundswell of support about an issue, not about the general concept of a State Department reauthorization. Lisa. Complete agreement. I mean, as a, as an outside observer who hasn't been on the inside baseball of these kinds of things, you, this is exactly where we would expect those signals about whether or not the foreign policy as executed by the administration is on the right track or on the wrong track to come through right now. So the question for someone like me would be, how do how does the implementation of this get managed? Where does the oversight ultimately reside and how will Congress exercise those duties in the coming year to make sure that the things that are in the NDAA actually expand beyond that and impact the implementation of the national security priorities they so clearly have outlined. Dana. I'm just going to add one final thing here. Don't disagree with anything any of my friends have said. The armed services committees don't want to be having to deal with all of this this legislation and the sanctions and foreign relations space either. Actually, they are so annoyed by it, and they would rather that the foreign relations and foreign affairs committee pass their own pieces of legislation. So there's an immense amount of consultation that goes on for these pieces of legislation because this isn't even the expertise of the staff. But again, this is the only national security vehicle, so this is where the action is. Jamil. So I'm not so sure about that. I think the armed services committees like playing in this space. I'm not. I'm not positive about that. But I do think that an important point that Elisa made is really is really critical that we focus on, which is this NDA is a rejection of the bulk of this administration's foreign policy. Right? It comes in hard against Russia and its involvement in Eastern Europe. It comes out hard against Turkey and our allowing of the Turks to roll over our allies and the Kurds. It comes out aggressively against China, which this administration has been back and forth about. But now with the trade deal going on, Congress is coming in on the other side of this. This, in a lot of ways, is a is a stick in the eye of Donald Trump um, and his foreign policy. Now, that being said, there are parts of this, North Korea uh, and, and others, that the president agrees on. And frankly, there are significant parts of this that people within the president's administration probably agree with more than the president. And so how this all plays out um, and whether uh, a lot of this gets implemented or whether there's a signing statement and what happens at that signing statement, I think will be an interesting part of the process as we go forward with this NDA, which is almost certain to pass um, and end up on the president's desk. All right. I'm going to disagree with you guys a little bit and say I've got real concerns about these foreign policy provisions being in the in the armed services bill. We're talking about modifications to implementing legislation for treaties. We're talking about authorizing security assistance levels. We're talking about general policy statements and sanctions related to any number of controversial issues. These are right in the wheelhouse of foreign relations and foreign affairs. And yes, banking has a role in sanctions. But really, as you know well, foreign relations has been kind of pulling that towards itself over time, which is where it should be. It's not really a banking issue. It's a foreign policy issue. It should be. And we're losing, and whatever ground was made, whatever ground was gained over the last few years on those issues and kind of returning some authority to the Foreign Relations Committee, where it's, which is where it belongs, and which which is what is contemplated by the structure of the Senate, and frankly, I think by the Constitution, uh, is, is, gonna, is in the long run going to 
weaken the hand of Congress, right? And we're, we're, Congress is losing its ability to impact policy. And frankly, I think this is one of the reasons you have a runaway policy in Afghanistan where we're spending money that makes no sense at all. Even though the mission, the core mission of stopping terrorism is, yes, critically important, there's no real oversight happening of the $5 billion a year we spent on average in Afghanistan training security forces that doesn't appear to have worked at all. So there's there are real costs in the long run to letting these things go to committees where, frankly, they don't have the expertise or even the interest in following up on them. This is We really need to see the Foreign Affairs and Foreign Relations Committee step up and do their jobs. So Dave. why do you think they didn't this year, Les? I, it's, that's a great question. I think I think the well, I have the I, answer. I, 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 go ahead. It's the majority <laughs> party in the Senate who didn't want to stand up in the foreign relations space and insist on their jurisdiction and their oversight of these issues. Amen, I, I, sister. I think you. I, I expect you guys to say that. I also think the minority party hasn't been willing to work with the majority party in collaboration in areas where they could have. But then I you would just get rollover legislation that totally defers to the executive anyway because this is a Republican party in the Senate there's that also, does not want to stand up to the president. I think there's too much of a value to the minority party in opposing things just to oppose them. And so they won't collaborate even on basic blocking and tackling issues like getting legislation out of the committee. If the minority party was going to work with the majority party in the Senate, I think we'd come out with legislation passed in the Foreign Relations Committee, which was a bunch of reports. Sorry. Well, that's what that's you got to start somewhere. <laughs> they should they should start there and move up. And that's that's kind of what we were doing when the, when and the last that folks were there. On the they should be building on that success. Providing honest and frank reports back to Congress. And we've seen again and again well, that in can, this you administ- can wait for the administration to send up honest and clear reports till the cows come home. They're not going to do it. Congress should act. They should take it upon themselves. There's enough data from Cigar, which Congress created. They could have done this stuff. They should have they we should have been doing it. They should should be doing it, they can do better. Look, the I think nobody can disagree that Congress can and should do more. The question is how you get there, right? And the challenge is, is that we don't see uh, the historical bipartisanship that we had seen, particularly in the Senate, um, in this current or even most recent Congresses. We did see for a, for a, a brief minute at the at the House Intelligence Committee with uh, Mike Rogers and Dutch Ruppersberger a real bipartisan effort to to move that committee forward. That has gone in the trash can uh, with Devin right. Nunez and Adam Schiff, the clown show uh, that is the House Intelligence Committee now, um, and the the frankly the, the the insanity of giving an impeachment process to the Intelligence Committee. Um, and we've seen similar things in the Senate. Uh, the days of Ben Cardin and Bob Corker working together or Bob Menendez and Bob Corker working together um, are long gone. And that's in part a, 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 a situation brought about by the current president uh, and his behavior in office um, and, frankly, by Congress's response to the president and his behavior in office. And so uh, nobody is, is free from blame in this area. Um, but there is not bipartisanship. And, frankly, this whole election of new people and election of disruptors – the American people are creating this problem in and of themselves. They want to disrupt D.C. Well, you know what's happening? It's They've disrupted it, and Congress is failing. And so if the American people are wondering why, they, why, why they, they're so unhappy about Congress and it's 70% approval rating, well, guess what? In part, it's because you're electing these lunatics in the White House and in Congress to office, and they're not working with each other, and they're not getting the work of the American people done. You hear, that, you hear that, voters? It's all your fault. <laughs> Amen. To, Hallelujah. Uh, all right. Let's go to the exit question for this segment. And this is this is not a yes or no question, but it is a single concept 
question. So of all of the various issues contemplated in the NDAA, whether it's sanctions on pipelines or uh, sanctions on different countries or policy changes or security assistance, what's the one issue set where you're seeing the biggest delta between Congress and the president? What's the, what's the area of disagreement that you think is most highlighted by this bill? So Dana. I'm going to start by saying what was very surprising to me that is absent from the NDAA is anything relating to the ongoing conflict in Yemen and a lot of very punitive measures that were that came out of both the House and the Senate versions of the NDAA before the conference that seemingly targeted Saudi Arabia either for its involvement in the killing of Washington Post journalist Kamal, Jamal Khashoggi or related to the conflict in Yemen. So, so there was a groundswell of support and, and a lot of um, activism on the Hill, encouraging there to be meaningful measures targeting Saudi Arabia for a view that is very bipartisan in Congress that Saudi Arabia has had a destabilizing role in the Middle East. And what is very surprising about this conference report is how great it turned out for Saudi Arabia. There's really nothing meaningful in there that would stop any activities that are already ongoing in support of Saudi Arabia and a few reports. So the so your point is at the end of the day, there's no difference between Congress and the administration on Saudi Arabia. So the interesting thing is this is an issue where there's bipartisan support. So the breakdown in Congress about what to do about Saudi Arabia does not break down along partisan lines. So, so, you're, so you're making my point I about am? how foreign affairs and foreign relations ought to be stepping up and taking action and not deferring to the Armed Services Committee because they've lost a real opportunity to drive a difference with the administration on Middle East policy. Is I, concede, that, am I, I concede your point. Right, I'm yes. glad you're coming around. <laughs> See, we can reach compromises. We can. This is a great podcast. All right, Elisa. So it's it, it may seem minor, but I found it really interesting that the NDAA had language on SIVs for Afghanistan, for as, Afghanistani visas, so special immigration visas for for Afghans who have who have helped in the U.S. effort in Afghanistan and increased that number by by several thousand. And given just where every where we have been with respect to immigration writ large, and specifically uh, even SIV. Uh, cases over the last year with the administration blocking almost all of them. Uh, I found I found this to be a, a modest but important marker. Yeah, kind of a McCain legacy issue, as mm-hmm. I recall. All right, Jamil. I mean, look, I think that uh, the president and Congress disagree on China, uh, and not not at least right now, or at least over the last year, because they've largely been aligned, but now with the trade deal getting done, or close to being done, or whatever... Is it a trade deal? Whatever is it is. Is that what we're calling whatever it? We're the calling thing, trade Whatever deal. this thing is, uh, the president, uh, as he's made clear, uh, is likely to give away the human rights issues in the Xinjiang province, likely to give away the democracy issues in Hong Kong, likely to give away the national security issues on Huawei and 5G... Uh, in order to get an economic whatever it is done, um, and uh, and I don't think Congress is on board with that. I think Congress is yep. much more concerned about it. Will they do anything about it? As we discussed, probably not. But they're definitely more concerned. And NDA I think shows that. Well, NDA has has provisions on exactly those items that you listed. That's what I was going to bring up. I think there is an emerging uh, difference between Congress and the administration on China, and the fact that the deal is done is going to give the president a lot less flexibility to deal with. 
uh, the difference of opinion coming at them from Congress. And I think we could be seeing that as a real action item next year. So I think I totally agree. It's China's the big issue in NDAA that shows a difference between legislative and executive branches. Uh, let's go to the uh, final part at a much shorter part, the uh, concluding portion of the podcast. What is the issue that's not on the front page that you are following? Who wants to go first? I'll go. I just saw an interesting letter sent by the ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Senator Bob Menendez, to Secretary of State Pompeo, accusing him of trying to remove the acting ambassador in Ukraine early, Bill Taylor. Um, It just, what another unforced error. After all the controversy, the impeachment inquiry, that votes in the House are not over. It's about to start in the Senate, and it just makes this look like the State Department and the administration is further trying to cover it up or remove anybody from any position of meaning and influence if they disagree with this president. Will that cost Pompeo votes in Kansas? I don't think so. Yep. All right. Who's next? Jamil. The uh, former president of Pakistan, uh, uh, Pervez Musharraf, was uh, sentenced to death in Pakistan. The Interestingly, the administration, the current administration, the civilian administration of Imran Khan, has not taken a position on this uh, decision by the uh, Pakistani judiciary. Of course, Musharraf is abroad in self-imposed exile, and uh, so the sense is not likely to be carried out. But remember... Pakistan is always, you know, a hot minute away from a military coup. Um, people have described uh, uh, Pakistan as a, uh, a not a country with a military, but a military with a country. I think that's in not an unfair characterization. Um, and so uh, if this causes problems, it not currently doesn't look like it, and Imran Khan is popular. Um, but at the next turn, you could very well see... Um, a, a future uh, Pakistani general um, thinking about what uh, what what a what another takeover might look like, and uh, given that this debt sentence isn't really going to have any effect, I don't think it's going to be much of a deterrent. So, interesting situation, very volatile part of the world, important part of the world, uh, particularly as we get involved with India and get closer to India. Um, we still have issues there, with, as we talked about with Afghanistan. So, uh, more to come, I think, on this issue, not the end of the conversation. Elisa. So not surprising, uh, focused on the Middle East, uh, the caretaker governments in Lebanon and Iraq kicking the can down the road perpetually on figuring out what on earth they plan on doing about their protests and their responses uh, by putting in place new prime ministers in both places. Uh, I think touches on all the issues that we've talked about over the course of the last hour, foreign assistance, deployments of U.S. troops, mission sets against terrorism threats, uh, Iran policy, all of it. And yet here we are still waiting to hear another delay coming out of Baghdad and Beirut. Okay, so I'm following uh, an issue between the Senate and the administration. It turns out that the true Iran hawks don't think the Trump administration has gone quite far enough. Senator Cruz uh, held up a nomination, a key nomination, uh, wanting a copy of a memo that the administration was working on that gives the administration view that it can, in fact, reimpose through the UN uh, Security Council resolution of, I believe, 2015, it can reimpose multilateral sanctions on Iran. It hasn't quite pulled the trigger on doing that. Real hawks like Ted Cruz and others want that to happen, and they're starting to put pressure on the administration uh, to get that argument out in public. And I think we're going to see, again, more action on that in the near future. Uh, All right. 
That's a wrap for our last episode of 2019. Alisa, thanks for joining us. It was great to have you here. Thanks for letting me crash. From the entire Fault Lines family, we want to thank you for tuning in, and we are so excited to keep the political arguments going into the new year. Everyone have a great holiday season. Thanks.